Chaplin loved the the play, but Louise didn't appreciate it all that much. And she actually said, if I knew I was going to be starring in the film version, I would have paid more attention at the time. (laughs) Out of the silver shadows and into the click lights of movie land comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of classic era films. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site about movies from the classic age from all around the world. It's the Mike's Got a Cold edition of Nitrateville Radio, but Nitrate can't wait for my Jolson-like golden throat to come back. So we'll be talking to Michael Schlesinger and Stan Taffel about the gold standard of classic movie buff festivals, Cinecon, held in Los Angeles every Labor Day weekend. And then, one of the great late silence is making its home video debut from Kino Lorber, William Wellman's Beggars of Life, with Wallace Berry and Louise Brooks. I talked to Thomas Gwadish, who did one of the commentary tracks on the release, about this restored classic. Just remember to make sure you're not begging for classic films like a hobo wanting a plate of beans. Subscribe to Nitrateville Radio at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And leave us a comment and a rating to help others discover this podcast before the railroad bulls discover you. Los Angeles, City of Blade Runner, Chinatown, Sunset Boulevard, and so on back to the earliest days of cinema. A town that hasn't always appreciated those early days. But one film festival has for 53 years, Cinecon. Like most of Los Angeles, Cinecon actually moved there from somewhere else. But for a quarter century or so, It's been Hollywood's leading festival of its own forgotten history, dredging the depths of studio vaults and private collections to bring L.A. things that haven't been seen since Spring Byington was a spring chicken. Today, veteran classic film distributor Michael Schlesinger and actor and collector Stan Taffel lead the team that puts Cinecon on. I spoke with him about this year's festival, which will be at the Egyptian Theater and Lowe's Hollywood Hotel, August 31st through September 4th. I started by asking Stan Taffel about what it's like programming a festival's 53rd year. Well, my goodness. Uh, I'm happy to say that nobody who is working on uh, Cinecon 53 has been doing it for 53 years, thank goodness. But we're very excited this year in that we are uh, expanding what we have normally done in years past. We've uh, added new programming. We have the same tried and true, if it's rare, we'll show it mentality and attitude. Um, And we have five days of over 65 presentations that are going to be happening at uh, the Egyptian Theater on Hollywood Boulevard. 
And we have programs at the Lowe's Hollywood Hotel, as well as lots of dealers' rooms. We also are honoring Norman Lloyd and Patricia Morrison with the 2017 Cinecon Legacy Award. Uh, they're both going to be there. Very excited uh, to honor them. It's uh, a long time coming. And the both of them are uh, older old, so we are blessed that we still have them with us and that they're able to come and uh, talk about their careers and see some film. So you only book centenarians at this point? Well, no. I Marsha Hunt's coming. She's not going to be a centenarian until October. No. <laughs> <laughs> but we honored her last year. She's just coming back for a visit. What okay. we're doing is our friend Lou Sabini from uh, Connecticut uh, mentioned to me about a, one of her very first films called The Accusing Finger, and I looked it up with our friends at one of the studios. They had a beautiful 35-millimeter print, so not only are we running it, but we contacted Marsha. She's a dear friend of ours, and she wants to see the film, so she's coming just as a patron to see the movie that she happened to have starred in in the mid-30s. She's a frequent attendee anyway. She comes just because she loves it, and loves to hang out and see her old friends and watch movies with her old friends. Nice. Tell me about Cinecon's history, what it grew out of originally. Originally, in 1965, in Indiana, Pennsylvania, a bunch of film fans got together with their own personal 8mm prints and a few 16mm prints, and they would show them for a long weekend. And it uh, grew pretty quickly out of that. More films started to surface. It's really funny to think that you know, back in the first Cinecons, you know, they were running Phantom of the Opera, and everybody was excited to see it on the big screen. Uh, we've certainly come a long way from that. And it used to travel. Every year it was in a different state, in a different city. And uh, around the early 90s, it uh, came back to California, and it sort of stayed and uh, has, hasn't really moved too much out of, out of uh, this area that we're in right now. Um, it, it, grow, it grew from an 8-millimeter film festival to what we now are running, which is 35 millimeter archival prints. And this year, I'm happy to say that now that the Egyptian theater has retrofitted the booth to nitrate standards, we are going to have something we're calling Saturday Nitrate Fever, and we're running cartoon shorts and a feature film in nitrate. So Cinecon has certainly gone way forward to go all the way back. I assume that you've had to evolve what you show with the availability of these films. How do you program, knowing that so much these days is on home video or TCM and so on? I'm very blessed, and so is Mike. We, um, Since I took over the presidency last year, I opened up our board to uh, 14 people now, and many of us gather and talk about films we'd like to see that have been recently restored or have been acquired or are in the archives of uh, the studios or some of the places we, we borrow films from. And what we try to do is have a pretty well-balanced mix. So it, it's kind of like the weather in Florida. If you're not liking what you're seeing, just wait a few minutes because something that you're bound to like is going to happen. So we have comedies and dramas and musicals and westerns. We've got plenty of B pictures. We have short subjects. We have cartoons. Last year, we ran an entire serial over uh, four days, uh, uh, a recently restored serial. So uh, silent sound, some color. Uh, we're very, very, very lucky that we have um, intelligent people on our board that uh, understand that if they don't get every film they want on the schedule, there's always next year. And I'm very happy uh, to say that 
I received a very, very lovely compliment from somebody uh, who is not prone to giving compliments out. It doesn't matter who it is, but it's someone that I know. And he said to me, this is the most diverse festival collection I have ever seen. And I, was, I took that as a major compliment. And as a result, uh, we have more people that have pre-registered for Cinecon this year than ever before. So what are some things that you're excited about? I'll jump in here. Uh, we are going to have um, uh, several West Coast premieres, one of which is the recent MoMA restoration of uh, an early John Ford sound picture called The Brat with Sally O'Neill and Alan Dinehart. Uh, I think this was the last uh, John Ford talkie that had not been preserved. Uh, we're going to show a movie I've wanted to show for a long time called No More Women with Edgar, with Edgar, Edmund Lowe, Victor McLaughlin, and Sally Blaine. It's my favorite of the McLaughlin Lowe's. They play rival deep sea salvage divers, and it's it's mostly comedy and it's really terrific. And if you like McLaughlin Lowe, you're going to love it. I, I, it's gorgeous. Print is unbelievable. Looks like nitrate. It's going to put my 16 millimeter print of that film to shame. I know. So this is exciting. I'm happy yeah. for you. Um, for the Lon Chaney fans, we found out that in 2008, um, MoMA actually restored from the only nitrate surviving material a print of The Lion, The Myth, The Man, and it's never had a public screening before, and we're honored to finally be able to present this Lon Chaney lost treasure. We also have a, a 100th anniversary re-premiere of a 1917 Universal Silent called Polly Redhead. Uh, with uh, Gertrude Astor. It's a very cute, charming, uh, faux Mary Pickford kind of comedy. Um, uh, oh, and something I, I'm happy to show uh, is um, The Power of the Press, which is not the Frank Capra silent, but the 1943 picture, uh, which is incredibly timely because it's literally about fake news. And uh, if you talk about newspaper pictures, two names always come to mind, Lee Tracy and Sam Fuller, and they're both involved in this film. And uh, Sam's widow and daughter, uh, Krista Fuller and Samantha Fuller, are going to be at the screening as well. And then on a personal note, uh, something I've wanted to do for a while is really get into the Universal B pictures that they made uh, during the war years. And I've put together a triple feature of three really good ones, uh, North of the Klondike with uh, Broderick Crawford, Andy Devine, uh, and Lon Chaney Jr. and Evelyn Ankers in their first picture together. Uh, Lakanga Nights, which is a musical comedy with Hugh Herbert and Constance Moore, and a really, really terrific uh, B-Western called Riders of the Santa Fe with Rod Cameron, which is, uh, if you don't like B-Westerns, trust me, you're going to love this one. Can I put in one shameless plug? Sure. Can I do it? No, because I, uh, well, what do you want? We may not be wanting to mention the same thing. Well, I wanted to mention that uh, my friend sitting over here to me is going to be premiering at the Egyptian Theater for that, for, for, for that premiere is a uh, Cinecolor tribute called Schmobot with Biffle and Schuster. And uh, it's going to be in the Egyptian theater. Yeah, part of Cinecon. It's, but it's different. It's not like all the others. This is a straight-up review with uh, classic vaudeville sketches and musical numbers featuring people like Janet Klein and Rusty Frank and the Saguaro sisters. And, um, and it, it's going to look great on the big screen. And I especially want to mention it because it may be the last time we ever get to show it on the big screen. Because um, it's on nitrate stock and it's very brittle. <laughs> yes. No, the actual <laughs> the actual serious reason is that the there are some copyrighted songs in in the uh, picture that were only licensed for X amount of time, and those rights are about to expire. And to be perfectly frank, I can't afford to relicense them. So at least for theatrical. So 
uh, after this, the only way you may be able to see it is on DVD. Well, here's my shameless plug, if I may. Go. For everybody who would like to see what the full schedule looks like for Cinecon 53, they should go to www.cinecon.org. We also have a Facebook page, Cinecon Classic Film Festival, and that is updated on a daily basis, and you can scroll through all of the posts and see what we're running and who's going to be there. And I do want to thank our beautiful, wonderful, talented pianists who are going to be playing. John Mersalis, Frederick Hodges, and Scott Lasky. And they will be playing the music for our silent films in the Egyptian theater over the five-day festival. What's the process for choosing the films? Do you go to the studios with like a shopping list, or how does that work? Actually, what really happens is because we have several screenings throughout the year with UCLA and uh, the Academy, we sometimes see things and we make notes of it if we think it's a really important picture. And then the other thing, of course, is with our friends that work in the archives, we pretty much know what they're working on, what recently has come to light, and some films that uh, we check specifically to see if they're actually in the archives. Um, you know, we were very lucky last year in that Mike Schlesinger, who um, is technically retired because uh, he was working at Sony, doing a great job uh, sending all those wonderful uh preservation archival films for repertory, he was able to be in a screening room seeing a lot of these films, and he would call me and tell me about films he liked, and, you know, Mike is like a brother to me, and I trust him when he says something. So uh, this year, probably more than uh, most of our board, I told them, because of the advantage Mike had in seeing some of these things that have not been screened yet, we have uh, two advantages. One, he has seen it and has approved it, and two, we'll be the first to run it. So that's some of the criteria that we use when we run film. And we were very fortunate that um, fairly early on, Bob O'Neill and Mike Feinberg at Universal, uh, they came to us at a point, this was probably 15 years ago, and said, we've now preserved all the A pictures. We're sitting here with two libraries full of things that we really don't know anything about. You, you guys are the experts. Tell us what's good. Tell us what we should preserve first. And we gave them a bunch of titles. In fact, No More Women was one of the very first titles I gave them. So, and uh, similarly, uh, during all my years at Sony, uh, Grover Christ, who's the head of asset management there, it would be the same situation. He was down to the B pictures, and he really didn't care in what order he preserved them. So if I said to him, would yeah, you preserve such and such a picture? He'd say, sure, no problem. I'll move it up to the head of the list. So in a way, we really were kind of shopping. Uh, but it, was, it worked out great for us, and they like it too because the prints are actually getting seen, which isn't always the case. I would also like to add that in addition to these films, and I think Mike did a really amazing job this year of, of picking some good titles for us, we also acknowledge the fact that our audience does like to see an occasional, what we um, unofficially call a Joe Franklin title. And I know, Mike, you know what I'm talking about when I say that. You know, a chestnut from... Uh, our, our youth. So what we decided this year, um, because I wanted to really make a stand, you know, uh, when we were doing Cinecon for all of those years, you, you generally are guided by whoever the president is, and you sort of tend to do mostly what, you know, his intentions are. And since it was my turn now, you know, sitting in the chair, you know, I wanted to let all of our attendees know that Cinecon is alive and well, and not only alive and well, but thriving. So 
we're doing something unique. We're opening up our program with an opening night reception and gala in the forecourt of the Egyptian theater. We're having food, a step and repeat, the whole paparazzi thing, uh, old-fashioned movie lights, you know, just like an old-fashioned premiere. Uh, and we'll be, uh, after we honor Norman Lloyd, we have a, uh, a full orchestra that is going to be playing music accompanying Buster Keaton in a David Shepard restored print of Steamboat Bill Jr. This way we honor David Shepard, our good friend, and we get to run Buster Keaton with a live orchestra in Hollywood. And it's a brand new score composed specifically for this occasion. Yes, yeah, I, I saw the orchestra's name, but I, I didn't know them. Tell me about them. The Famous Players Orchestra is a group of people uh, put together by a gentleman by the name of Scott Lasky. And I know, Famous Players Orchestra, Lasky, people always say, is he related? Well, no, he's, um, he's not related. But Scott has the largest privately owned collection of music that was written specifically for silent films. Not necessarily a particular silent film. He has his sheet music collection is the equivalent of the old Victor picture music discs. He has thousands of melodies that he can uh, corral together and cobble and put together for a short subject or a feature film. So the, so the, the music he is going to be conducting this orchestra with is music that was written not for a specific silent film, but for silent film. So he'll have the right hurry music, the right chase music. He's actually building a wind machine for this performance. It's going to be quite an impressive thing. And because it's uh, an orchestra that I was, um, he put me on the board of it uh, early on. So I've been helping the orchestra and choosing certain films. Uh, we figured that this would be the perfect film to honor David Shepard and to introduce the world to the famous Players Orchestra. And people are going to love them. They're, they're a full orchestra. They don't have uh, you know, any gimmicks to them. They're playing the authentic period piece music. And I think, I predict that we, as silent film enthusiasts, are going to be hearing a lot of the famous Players Orchestra. And it really is because of this, this, this gentleman, Scott Lasky, a wonderful musician who also will be playing piano for uh, one-third of the other silent films over the five days. And as a matter of fact, uh, just mentioning Scott Lasky one more time, last year we ran Harold Lloyd's 1924 feature, Girl Shot, and Scott was playing it. And this was his first time at Cinecon, and I told him just before the uh, screening that uh, my friend Suzanne Lloyd, Harold's granddaughter, was going to be there in the audience, and that... You know, she had commissioned for a score to be placed with Girl Shy when it gets uh, seen and on, certainly on DVD and Blu-ray. It's a score she paid for. So having him play, that was kind of like two strikes against him in his head. But when it was, <laughs> Sue ran to me and said, who is that man? And even I was worried. I said, oh, that's Scott Lasky. She said, I have to talk to him. And I brought him over there, still not sure, but ready to jump in and protect if need be. And Sue Lloyd shook his hand and said, you are brilliant. I loved what you did for my dad's film. And Scott has been riding the crest of that wave all year long. And this year, we are running a brand new documentary that was just made on the life of Harold Lloyd, which we are premiering uh, for its U.S. premiere at Cinecon. And I'm very excited about this festival. I just, I'm afraid that I won't be able to stay awake like Jerry Lewis and watch all these stars come out. 
I get the feeling that for a long time, Cinecon was kind of it for digging up rarities like these from the vaults, at least in the L.A. area. Now you've got high-profile competition in things like the TCM Festival. How has that affected what Cinecon does? Well, I'll tell you right away, um, you know, bless the TCM Festival, because they are certainly bringing the films to audiences on television. But I do want to say, here's the difference. If you want to go to the movie theater and see Gone with the Wind or The Wizard of Oz, you go to the TCM Festival, hands down. That's the place to go. If you want to see films that don't normally get seen anymore, that have been archivally preserved, that aren't the A-list picture, per se, you come to Cinecon. And that is our difference, and I think that's what is interesting. This year, I'm hearing about people that go to TCM that are coming to Cinecon because, you know, they love to have and have not in Casablanca. But you know what? They want to see another film with Claire Trevor or Humphrey Bogart. And we're going to be the place to provide that. And, of course, we're running it at the Egyptian Theater. And not every film festival is as blessed as we are to be in an authentic motion picture palace. But I think that really is the difference. There is room for everyone. Another one of the things that Cinecon is known for is having guests from the vintage era. But as that era slips further and further into the past, well, there's fewer and fewer of them. How do you adjust, How are you adjusting to that? Well, obviously, you know, uh, there comes a point where there aren't that many people left to honor. Uh, and when Cinecon started, they were honoring silent film stars, many of whom were still alive and, and in very good shape. Uh, but as the years pass, the, the people from the 30s and 40s have, you know, uh, sadly gone to that great uh, studio in the sky. And uh, it, it's always great to have them. And yes, we're blessed to have people like Norman and Patricia and Marsha still around and, and still functioning. But I, I think at the end of the day, it's really more about the movies. And um, so uh, when we run out of guests, then uh, that is, that is a, a bridge we will have to cross. Uh, but uh, but it's been great to have them around. We've had a lot of sensational guests over the years, uh, and we've had some wonderful moments. I remember uh, back in the early 90s, uh, for example, we honored Lou Ayers, and at the banquet when he was given his award, he, uh, he literally broke down in tears and said, in my 60 years in the business, I've been given so many awards, but this is the first one I've ever gotten for my acting. Hmm. And we were all just puddles. Uh, Similarly, Ruby Keeler, who had been told her entire life that her career was a joke, was so moved that not only the people remember her, but that they still loved her and they didn't think her career was a joke. And it's moments like that that, you know, just make you realize this is the greatest uh, thing in the world. You know, Mike, we could do a whole podcast just on our Cinecon memories. It's, uh, it's wonderful that we were able to honor them when we, when we, when we were. But the most important thing is the films that will remember them. Starring Maria Montez, Susanna Foster, Jack Oakey, Turande, Louise Albritton, Anne Blythe, Donald Cook, Donald O'Connor, Peggy Ryan, Leo Carrillo, Frank McHugh, Andy Devine, Evelyn Ankers, with Manhattan's million dollar legs, a Bowery made and the garter. You're the one. Those legs, they're perfect. Now, just a minute. I'll make you the toast of New York. Jewels, furs, motorcars. You'll be a star. The girl with the million-dollar legs. Listen, the guy was a showman, a great showman. 
He goes gaga over you, and what is he now? A flop owner with five straight flops to his credit. That's 1944's Bowery to Broadway, which will be showing, in better quality, I'm sure, at Cinecon this year. Cinecon is August 31st through September 4th in Hollywood. Get more information and tickets at Cinecon.org. That link and others will be in the show post at Nitrateville.com. A tramp stops at a house. He smells eggs and bacon inside. He knocks on the door, asks if there's any to spare for him. The man at the table doesn't respond. The tramp steps inside. He sees a trail of blood. The man at the table has a bullet in him. Then the tramp sees a young girl. She shot the man. You can guess why. They decide to leave and take off for the open road together. That stark opening could be a film noir from the 40s. But in fact, it's 1928's Beggars of Life, director William Wellman's follow-up to his smash hit and the first Oscar winner, Wings. Long hard to see and even harder to appreciate in the murky dupes that circulated, Beggars of Life was restored from a high-quality 16mm source by the George Eastman House. Now it's coming out from Kino Lorber on August 22nd, with music, which you've been hearing, by the Mont Alto Motion Picture Orchestra. Film historian and critic Thomas Gwadish does one of the two commentary tracks on the disc. The other is by William Wellman Jr. He's also put out a book, Beggars of Life, a companion to the 1928 film, that tells the story of this film and the many characters behind it, including Wellman, who was at the top of Hollywood at the time, the film stars Richard Arlen, Wallace Beery, and an up-and-coming young actress named Louise Brooks, and not least of all, Jim Tully, the legendary hobo writer who wrote the book it's based on. Jim Tully uh, wrote Beggars of Life. It's a book he published in 1924, 1925. Um, and it's a autobiographical novel. Um, it's, it's a little bit of both. It, it's certainly autobiography or memoir, but it's sort of embellished with some narrative technique. So that's, that's the story of the book. And it came out and it did quite well uh, when it first came out. Um, it went through a, a couple different printings and there was a stage adaption of the book by Maxwell Anderson, very famous playwright in his day, later Pulitzer Prize winner. And um, that did pretty nicely. One of the pro- co-producers of that stage version was Eugene O'Neill. And uh, famous playwright. And in 1925, in late summer, early fall of 1925, the, the stage version of Beggars of Life, which was called Outside Looking In, it was showing at a theater in New York City. And um, Charlie Chaplin was in town, and uh, he went to see that play because actually Jim Tully used to work for Charlie Chaplin as a publicist. 
and um, he worked for him for maybe a little more than a year or so. And uh, it was because of the success of Beggars of Life, the book, that he was able to um, leave Chaplin's employ and become a full-time author. So Chaplin was, was aware of this, and he went to go see it in New York City, and he loved the play. He went to see it actually a number of times um, because it was about a tramp, you know, and, and his character, his persona was a, of the little tramp. Um, and on one of those occasions, he took Louise Brooks with him because the two were having a brief affair. Um, and uh, Chaplin loved the, the play, but Louise didn't appreciate it all that much. And she actually said, if I knew I was going to be starring in the film version, I would have paid more attention at the time. <laughs> so um, so that's sort of the general background. Uh, Tully was a um, known as a tramp author. Um, he was basically self-educated. He, uh, as a teenager, he ran away from home and he rode the rails as his character did in, um, Beggars of Life. Uh, Beggars of Life was one of his books that was about, um, being a hobo or riding the rails. And then he also wrote a number of other books, um, most of which were well received in his day. Um, about his other adventures of life of working in a circus and, and being a semi-pro boxer, um, et cetera, et cetera. So he, he was a colorful character. And um, after the success of Beggars of Life, he was living in Hollywood and he became a Hollywood journalist, very, uh, very, very well known uh, in his day as a Hollywood journalist. Um, and because he was an outsider, both a literary outsider and a Hollywood outsider, he um, spoke the truth, and um, at least the truth as he saw it. And so in his time, he was regarded in Hollywood as the man Hollywood loved to hate <laughs> because he wrote pieces that um, the movie stars and the directors and the producers and the studios didn't like a lot of the time. Um, and he also tried to write a, he wrote a biography of Chaplin in the late twenties that Chaplin kind of squashed, um, for various reasons, though parts of it were published in magazine form. Um, so yeah, he was, he was very well known. He actually appeared in a couple of films. Um, there was a famous incident where he um, and John Gil he had written a piece about John Gilbert that Gilbert didn't like. And a couple of years later, um, they came across one another in a restaurant and they got into a brawl and, and uh, Tully, who was a, a burly little fellow, but nevertheless had experience in the boxing ring, threw a punch and knocked Gilbert out. Um, so there was this sort of famous uh, feud between them. But they, that didn't stop them from appearing in a film together as actors. It was a Wallace and Berry film from the early 30s called Make Way for a Sailor, I believe. Um, so that's the background on Tully. Uh, William Wellman uh, purchased or Paramount purchased the rights to the Tully book and the stage play and combine them together. And they, they purchased the rights in early 1928 and um, 
the uh, film of Beggars of Life came out in the fall of 1928. Yeah, so Wellman now at this point is coming off of Wings. Uh, won, the, won the first Oscar, which, you know, you don't know if that was that big a deal then. Who knew if there was ever going to be a second Oscar at that point? But nevertheless, a big hit, uh, still a famous film today. And was this one of those situations where he's sort of like uh, John L. Sullivan in Sullivan's Travels? He tells them he wants to make a movie that's about real life and they don't want to have anything to do with it, but they have to because he just made them a hit or... I think it was a project that uh, appealed to Wellman a good deal, but I don't think that there was any, um, you know, strong arming, let us say, um, either way. I mean, uh, certainly Wellman was at the top of his game, um, and, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a story that appealed to him. It was about a rough and tumble outsider, which I think he was to a, a good degree, you know, at least in Hollywood. Um, he had been, you know, in trouble as a, as a juvenile. Um, you know, he left home to go fight in World War I. So he, he had a pretty... Um, well, he had, let's just say he had a not dissimilar life from Jim Tully. Um, he was never a hobo, Wellman was never a hobo, but he, um, you know, had a sort of a rough and tumble masculine outlook on life. Now, one thing that really strikes me, I think probably strikes anyone who sees Beggars of Life, is it just has such a slam-bang opening. Richard Arlen goes into a house. He finds a body and he finds a girl. I mean, what a, what a great noir opening. And what follows isn't mm-hmm. exactly noir, but like Public Enemy, there's certainly sort of anticipatory aspects of it, of where right. noir would come from. Um did he ever, I don't know, did he ever make an out-and-out noir? Uh, I don't think so. But he certainly made gangster films. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, which, which anticipate tough. that kind of thing. Yeah, a lot of tough, dark, well, I was thinking like Oxbow Incident. I mean, in a lot of ways you'd call that a kind of a, a social reform picture, but it's, I mean, it's pretty dark and shadowy and things like Roxy Hart or something, you know, again, mm-hmm. kind of have right. that, that world to them that, that isn't too far from noir. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's just, I mean, it's, it's a very dynamic film throughout. Uh, you mentioned in the book that everybody's always moving. Nobody stands around in the, in the movie. Right. Right. That was one of Wellman's, um, signatures on his films was that you know things are always in motion and he he appreciated unusual camera angles and and just you know adding detail to films in order to enrich you know the storyline and and the visuals of it all uh he was certainly a master of that kind of thing and which which is an interesting challenge on a film like beggars of life because it's set out in the middle of nowhere um you know, so you don't really have that kind of uh, urban environment, let's say, that you you could uh, embellish with interesting detail and lighting and whatnot. You know, uh, the outdoors uh, along the train tracks is a kind of minimal environment, you might say. But, um, you know, Wellman still pulls it off. There's a lot of um, interesting visual detail, I think, when they're in the um, train car, 
the one that they transport stuff in and then all the hobos jump in and there's all this, you know, there's, there's like a hobo graffiti on the wall. Uh-huh. Um, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, he doesn't really give you a chance. He's not like pointing the camera at this stuff saying, oh, look at this stuff that I put in there. It's just like in the background. And if you start noticing it, it's like, oh, wow, there's a lot of interesting stuff to look at you know, right. in the film besides the action. Well, and, you know, speaking of, of the movement, I, th- I found it really, in- or I thought it was a really interesting point in your book. You say when they decided to add a sound sequence to it, which I guess is now lost, um, mm-hmm. they wanted to have Wallace Beery stand there and sing a song. And the last thing Wellman wanted to have anybody do was just stand there to do anything. Right. So he, you know, the, the uh, perhaps apocryphal story is that, um, Wellman was really frustrated at this, so he um, put the mic on a stick or a broom handle and um, carried it along out of camera sight as um, Wallace Berry marched into the hobo camp with a barrel of whiskey on his shoulder. And that was supposedly one of the very, certainly one of the very first times that um, a mic on a stick, a so-called boom mic, would be used in the film, but, um, it was, you know, um, there had been sound elements, um, in earlier, uh, films, but this was, um, the, for also as a related note, this is the first time that, um, dialogue was used ever so briefly in a Paramount film. So there's that kind of historical marker there, Hmm. but that's all lost, right? Um, yes. Um, in theory there, I have heard, um, strong rumor, a strong, um, uh, that's to say a rumor that, um, one of the discs, the first disc from the film survives in the hands of a private collector. Hmm. So, um, but all the rest of it apparently is lost. Um, but who knows, you know, they found, um, uh, a 1927 lost Louise Brooks film in the Czech Republic um, just recently. So who knows what's going to show up um, someday. Right. Well, and on that note, let's turn to Louise Brooks. Uh, I mean, I've seen by this point a pretty good amount of her uh, surviving American silent films. You've probably seen everything that survives by this point. Right. And, I mean, this. She's a very effervescent personality in things like "Love Him and Leave Him" and or "Love Him or Leave Him," whichever it mm-hmm. is. Um, right. But you would have to say this is sort of the beginning of her acting career. I feel you know where she's she's really, you know, giving a full fledged performance and not just being captivating to look at. Yeah, this is very different from. Um her earlier flapper comedies, the the only two films in her American body of work that uh, perhaps anticipate or suggest what she would do in Beggars of Life. There's a lost 1927 film called The City Gone Wild, which is a gangster film, Um, as well as her very first film, but she's only in it for five minutes, which was called The Street of Forgotten Men, which is an underworld story about a gang of criminals. Um, So, you know, 
today we don't know what those look well we do we have seen um i have seen the street of forgotten men which um is held at the library of congress um but again she's only in it briefly uh city gone wild who knows um you know she played a um a gangster's girlfriend a mall in that film um but yeah the beggars of life is certainly um her best American film. It's her finest acting in an, in an American film. Um, and, you know, I think its reputation is going to rise now that is going to be coming out on DVD later this year. Um, so I think people will have a chance to see it and re reevaluate it. It is a really, really good film. Um, and it anticipates the kind of dark corners that she would, uh, inhabit in things like Pandora's box and diary of a lost girl. Now I think it's interesting that she's um, depicted somewhat androgynously in this film. And I mean, we all think of her as a great beauty, but it kind of say, I mean, with the, with the haircut that she's famous for and all of that, I mm -hmm. mean, she wasn't styled like typical actresses of the time. And there does seem, I think one of the things that we respond to is that she's got this kind of David Bowie thing going on 50 years early that they maybe didn't quite understand <laughs> when they were doing right. it. Um, and this is the, you know, in a lot of ways, the most uh, striking example of it, because she is uh, dressed as a boy through much of it. Um, it is, isn't that kind of odd for the, for the female lead of the picture? Yes. Um, I mean, that's what the story calls for, but yes, it is. I mean, and, and she, uh, you know, that's something that Wellman, I think was, uh, playing with at least, um, you know, below the surface of the film is the whole androgyny. You know, she is the only female in the entire film, which is a bit striking when you think about it, because any other film, you know, there are, lead women characters usually and um, uh, supporting female characters. And in this film, she is the only woman. And for a lot of the time, she is dressed as a boy and her true uh, gender is obscured. But of course, they figured out quickly enough in the film. Right. Um, and, and, and her, the fact that she was so lovely, um, you know, it takes a certain amount, a suspension of disbelief to <laughs> accept her as a, a boy, as the, in the eyes of the characters, you know, but we all go there and it's like, sure, she's, she's a young man. Um, you know, for, one does suspend one's disbelief uh, while watching the film. Well, and it seemed to work um, for her in a way that, I mean, when Catherine Hepburn did it in Sylvia Scarlet, I mean, it was a it was a fairly famous flop, and I I think she right. was she was more seen already as more of an assertive female character, so maybe people just couldn't buy that from her in the same way. Yeah, I I don't know. Uh, you know, there were a small handful of um, cross dressing uh, characters in silent films. So yeah, at the time, actually, there was a book that came out recently called "Girls Will Be Boys" about all of the um, characters in the silent period where girls dressed up as boys. Um, you know, it wasn't un un as uncommon as we would think, but um, nevertheless, it was pretty effective um, 
in Beggars of Life. And it wasn't something, you know, reading all the, the criticism of the time, uh, a number of car- uh, critics called attention to the fact that Louise Brooks, a famous beauty, dressed up as a boy, but none of them really made much of an issue out of it, you know. So I don't think it was as shocking right. to 19 audiences in the late 20s as we think it might have been, you know, from our early 21st century perspective. Um, so, you know, it was just, it was something that was done in, in service of the story. So I think people just kind of accepted it. Yeah. So Wellman, in a way, remade this film in the early sound era. I say in a way because the plot isn't really similar, but there's a very similar dynamic in Wild Boys of the Road. How do you Correct. compare that to Beggars of Life? You know, I, I just watched that film uh, somewhat recently, and it's a terrific film. I think anybody who um, likes Beggars of Life would, would also like this film. It's, it's um, I think, a little more pointed, perhaps, than Beggars of Life, because um, he was dealing with maybe a bigger um, set of issues with the Depression and what happens to these young people who hit the road looking for a better life. Um, but Dorothy Coonan, who was his, who would become his future wife plays the cross-dressing girl who, um, in that film. And she does a really terrific job. I, I really, um, liked it a lot when I watched it. Um, so yeah, I would recommend it. Uh, definitely. I know it's out on DVD. Uh, so definitely, your view, your listener should uh, check it out. Check it out as well. Yeah, no, I think it's a terrific yeah. film, and uh, it's as you say, it's more of a social reform film. It's very much a New Deal mm-hmm. film in a way that Beggars of Life right. is not. But uh, right. but a, yeah, very interesting companion piece. Um, all right, well, I think that's that's pretty much all I have. Is there anything else you want to say about it? Ah. Uh... Boy, there's so much. Um, I, I would, uh, I guess, but I guess I said it all in my book, um, which is called Beggars of Life, a companion to the 1928 film. And um, I wrote it sort of as a companion piece to the uh, to the DVD, which is coming out uh, this summer from Kino Lorber. And uh, my audio commentary is also going to be on that DVD. So, um, you know, please check it all out uh i I think the book is interesting in that the film itself is such an interesting thing you have an outsider jim tully you have a maverick director william a wellman and you have a screen uh icon louise brooks so what more could you ask for Beggars of Life comes out from Kino Lorber on August 22nd. I'll have links for it and for Thomas Gwadish's book on the film, as well as for the Louise Brooks Society, the fan site he's run for her since 1995, in the show post at nitrateville.com.
thanks to my guests, Stan Taffel and Michael Schlesinger of Cinecon, and Thomas Gwadish. Thanks also to Matt Berry at Kino Lorber for giving permission to use the Mont Alto Motion Picture Orchestra's score for Beggars of Life. Those guys are always good. Other music is by Kevin McLeod. With any luck, the next episode will take us into the third dimension. I'll talk with Bob Fermanek, Jack Feekston, and the crew that's breathing new life into the 50s fad of 3D on home video as they get a week of screenings at the Museum of Modern Art in New York in early September. So be sure to subscribe at the podcast site of your choice. Thanks.